Alright y'all come on in, take your shoes off, sit on down. Y'all listening to In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile. I'm Spun Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. This here is another edition of Trying to Herd Cats, the philosophical podcast where we throw anonymous quotes at anonymous people and see what shakes out. And at the end of the podcast, I will give the source of the quotes. So get right into it. First quote is, let's meet on the bridge and exchange prisoners. You walk home with my thoughts. I walk home with yours. Maybe then the war is over. I think it's an interesting thing because... Like, what wars are built about is a difference of opinion. And I think if people would just kind of, like, explain their opinions to each other, then a lot of things could be... So, I want you to be my slave. That's... I'm explaining myself. Okay. Yeah. What's your point of view? You want me to be your slave? Yeah. I think that we are so Uh close-minded to our own idea that, let's say you and I walk to the bridge, Uh and you're like... I want you to be my slave because X, Y, and Z. And I'm going to tell you, I don't want to be your slave because of X, Y, and Z. I want you to take your those thoughts with you. Think about them. And I'm going to go on my way and think about why you want what you want. And I think once we become to an understanding about what the other side wants, then we can kind of understand what their position is. I don't know. Like, if you ever gave slaves the opportunity to have slaves, would they have slaves? And I mean, you can think about it like in old biblical times when slaves had slaves. Like, you know, I don't know what Fidel Castro could say at a bridge that I would be in agreement with. And I know he wouldn't be in agreement with anything that I said. (laughs) But if we ever could just kind of exchange thoughts. Uh Do you think that that would really work? I mean, would it... Would, the, would the, the people that he's enslaved like walk away from the bridge thinking like, oh, now I see Fidel's point of view. He just, he just wants to be in charge or, or he wants to... I don't know, to. because if you look at Fidel Castro's mm-hmm. like background, mm-hmm. he was poor. He was, I mean, I well, guess... Well, he's middle class, wasn't he? I don't, I don't know, I but know he was, was not... Middle, kind yeah. of upper middle class, yeah. But they were not wealthy. Yeah, they weren't But they had the whole idea about everybody being equal, about this equality in the world, which really isn't. Mm -hmm. It's not feasible. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, I don't know why he thinks. I mean... In a way, I mean... In a way, his ideas... Everyone's equally in poverty there, except for him. He's doing doing pretty well. But if you see the ideas of communism, just like an Uh overview, like just like a fly-through, they seem fair seems like a fair system except that it can't work because that's not the way humanity is well everyone's equally miserable like now my um my master is something else my master is the credit card my master Uh is the mortgage Uh my master is a car payment we don't have but it's still the kind of same system where Uh i mean i'm basically working just to give somebody else my money that's true but you didn't you voluntarily go into the agreement with visa no, they were like, here, have all this money. And I was like, yay. And then they were like, we want it back. And I was like, why? <laughs> Again, let's meet on the bridge and exchange prisoners. You walk home with my thoughts, 
I walk home with yours. Maybe then the war is over. Kind of makes me think of a breakup just because it sounds like a, I guess I clung on to the, the idea of leaving with each other's thoughts. Kind of sounds like it coming together and have an opportunity to speak your part and then parting ways, kind of a reconciliation or a, you know, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Have you done that yourself before? Oh, yeah. I lived in Nashville for years, and the end of my time in Nashville was kind of rough. I burned several bridges. So you burned them while the people were there to meet you? <laughs> oh, yeah, that ties in. <laughs> I know. But I was about to up and move away to Arizona, and it just felt really wrong to me that to leave with these this bad blood between myself and people I had once cared about. So I actually took time to contact. It was only a couple of people, but nonetheless, I met up with them. We just came together, literally, one meeting just to kind of have it out and, and let one another speak and talk it through and shake hands. And it was a, it was a good test for myself as well because that's really scary mm -hmm. to face someone who you've wronged or maybe they've wronged you and um, be willing to kind of take whatever's coming at you for the sake of some peace, right. I guess. But um, I got lucky. The people that I was trying to work things out with, um, they were they were happy to have it happen. And I think just somebody needed to do it. Some of those things that were said to you on the bridge, so to speak, did they still echo in your head a little bit? Uh, maybe like shortcomings or things that you fall prey to? Yeah, um, not, not honestly, there is only one. Um, and this was with a person, you know, we, I remember we met in East Nashville and we met at a park and it started out kind of, we were both standing by our cars and it was kind of awkward and mm. he had no pants on and that was part of the problem. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think he basically, I, I can't remember the words he used now, but he did take a moment basically just to say how, wrong I was for how I didn't like own up to things that were happening and that I I just kind of let him flounder and let him take the heat for a bad situation you think he was right yeah he was right I know he was right and I owned up to it I admitted that and I let him get it out and you know we talked about what would have been a better way to go about the problem we had and uh after that, it was kind of, it was funny. As soon as we finished that conversation, it almost felt like we were best friends again. And we decided to keep hanging out for that evening. We went down the street to a, you know, a restaurant bar and had a drink and had a meal and had a really great evening. And then I haven't seen him since. Really? It's been like 10 years. Yeah. You haven't spoken to him? No. We did a few years ago connect through Facebook. Mm -hmm. But that was basically just, you know, we we said hi and kind of watched each other. He moved out of the country and got married. And I, you know, moved here and there and had my son and have my family now. And, uh, hi. Hi. I was taking a bath a long time. You were taking, you were taking a bath a long time. Are you? Oh, yeah, I'm naked. You, you are naked. Where's Tim? Tim's still there. You, I don't see. Well, you don't see him now because we're just talking. I will. I'm here. Hi. Hi. Are you still stinky? No. Good. I could smell you through the speakers. It was ooh, knocking me out. Hey, Mom. What? I don't 
I don't want him to be in there if there's no Tim in there. <laughs> Let's meet on the bridge and exchange prisoners. You walk home with my thoughts, I walk home with yours. Maybe then, the war is over. I mean, there's the current movie right now, Bridge of Spies, which is where this thing of meeting on the bridge, I think, comes from. That was really the first big prisoner exchange in the 1960s. And so that's it on one level. You know, here's your prisoner. Our prisoner is being given to you, and now he's a free man, maybe. And your prisoner is being given to us, and now he's a free man, maybe. And we have avoided a military conflict by exchanging these prisoners. Um, but then there's also the thing of, I want to know how you think, and I hope that you want to know how I think. And if we can better understand each other, maybe we can better avoid conflict. Can you think of a conflict you had with a person that was actually solved by having a powwow? Pretty much every boyfriend I've had. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. You know, we have a fight, and I'm mad because he did blah, 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 and he's mad because I did blah, blah, blah. And if we are emotionally mature enough, which some boyfriends have been and other boyfriends have not been, but if we are emotionally mature enough to sit down, take a deep breath, and listen really hard, then we can get through it. But listening is key. If every time he says something and he's trying to get through a thought and I jump in and interrupt him, I'm not listening. I'm just thinking about the next thing I'm going to say to argue with him. (laughs) And same way. But if I can listen to him until he's all said it out and take it in, which doesn't mean he's right, Mm. but I'm really trying to understand his point of view. And if he's able to do that for me, just sit and, li- and not jump in and interrupt and not jump in and try to fix, but just listen until I kind of run down. And then even better is if either one of us or both of us can say, okay, I get where you're coming from, and then repeat it in my own words. This is where you were at, and you believe this because blah, 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 blah. And he says, okay, well, this is where you were at. You believe this because da, 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 da. We've gotten a step closer. Let's meet on the bridge and exchange prisoners. You walk home with my thoughts, I walk home with yours. Maybe then, the war is over. I don't know, it sounds like the ideas are the prisoners in your mind and maybe the communicating them is allowing them to escape other people and kind of be communicated into their their minds, their interpretations of it. Do you feel like some of your thoughts are prisoners? I think um, everybody's, you know, in a sense, a, a prisoner of their own mind. You know, there's no way for you to escape your own mind, you know, the thoughts that it presents to you necessarily. I mean, there's ways to, you know, if you have negative thoughts, there's ways of promoting positive thoughts. But, uh, you know, communicating when we talk is a way of releasing ideas into the world. And then maybe they become somebody else's prisoner, you know. Where do you think ideas come from? I mean, you know, we're kind of taught nowadays where everything's just pure biology. Yeah, maybe it is biology, but maybe there's a lot of, I don't know, like, the you know, I don't, I don't, pretend to understand computers, you know, but there's, you know, they're just electric, electric and circuit boards and all that stuff, but it can produce a lot of amazing things. Um, maybe, in a sense, we're biological computers, and maybe we're not. Maybe there's something more to it. 
But regardless of what the underlying nature of it or the underlying structure of it is, I feel like what it produces is pretty amazing thing. You know, I don't, I don't, you know, like being conscious and having ideas, regardless of how it's produced, it feels pretty cool. Uh, is there any thoughts you'd like to get rid of? Not really any ideas I want to get rid of. I imagine if I was like a squeamish individual or if I was like super sensitive to maybe like violence or like gore, like maybe like if I saw a violent image or a movie or a game, I'd be like, I want to get rid of this. But you can't because it's stuck in your mm -hmm. mind. But I think, at least for me, the best way, what they call it, like mindfulness or something like that, it's like being able to kind of step back and like listen to your ideas and not attach them to your identity. Realize that there's some part of your brain that kind of comes up with ideas. You know, the conscious you can kind of pick and choose what you like, but sometimes you have a thought that's like, oh, it's, that was a weird thought. Why don't I have that? Or maybe like that, you know, I, don't, I, don't, I just had that thought, but I'm just, I don't agree with it. It's interesting that, I'm just guessing, for a person that, say, doesn't believe in God, or, so you would have to then say that all thoughts that, unless you got them from someone else, come internally. And I can only speak for myself, but I think most people have awful thoughts, like angry, you want to kill someone, or you want to, you know, cheat on your wife, or, or whatever. So it makes you wonder where those thought if there is no well I guess the devil too uh, yeah. if there's that entity where those thoughts come from from a biological computer and why would it present you with those Yeah well at least in my point of view I'm I'm not religious I I don't subscribe to like at least a the, newsletter the main yeah <laughs> a, a newsletter religious newsletter yeah. it's like the main religions that you know a lot of people follow on the planet <laughs> That being said I think almost uh, what do you call it poisoning the well or something like that it's like you kind of are born and you don't really have any thoughts about the matter and then you grow up and you think you hear like oh you can choose you can be christian or you can be jewish you can you know be muslim you could you can follow all these like big religions of the world and we kind of get into these ideas that a creator has to follow what we think it should like it has to follow our ideas of logic and things that we can even comprehend but there are laws in the universe that we understand that something like a dog wouldn't understand. Like, imagine if a dog could speak, or imagine that even if a kid came up with a religion, like a, a five-year-old, his idea of what God would be would be very different than what maybe, like, Einstein would think, right? Because mm -hmm. Einstein, just his capabilities to understand the world are so drastically different than a five-year-old. I feel like even Einsteins of the world are still babies in comparison to the brilliance of the universe. And so, at least in my mind, though, I think a lot of the religions that are presented to us are, are kind of man-made in the sense that they follow what we think would be a good idea for God. But maybe there is something else out there that is greater than what we can even imagine. So I don't disagree that something like that could exist. I don't agree with the current idea of what a lot of these religions... I agree with some of the ideas that they espouse, you know, like love your neighbor, that kind of stuff. But, like, I wouldn't say that I believe in one and say I think they've got it right. When we're talking about where do ideas come from, I would fall into the ring where I think the our current scientific explanation of this is sometimes it's kind of frustratingly devoid of meaning in a sense. You know, it's like we, well, we have good thoughts or bad thoughts are just labels we put on them. Most thoughts we have and most things we do are related to the survival of our individual self or the species. So if you have a a negative thought like I want to kill somebody, it could be related to they're a threat to me, I need to eliminate them so I can continue to survive. Or if there's a good thought, like I need, I really dig this woman, I really want to be with her, or I, I want to cheat on my wife, maybe it's because in your, your brain is saying like, she's a good mate, let's, you know, let's go with her. She's a, she'll have good babies. I think that's part of getting more mature as a species is that we realize that we don't need to follow all those impulses. Hmm. Um, you know, if you're a, a dog, or like a, a wild animal, yeah, you may just leave your kids or your family to like find a better mate. 
I can see what you're saying where a lot of uh, thoughts we have are a matter of survival, but they also can be destructive. That's fair. Self-destructive, yeah. Yeah. I think as much as we like to make sense of the world through theories like evolution and stuff like that, there are still like things that we have yet to understand about ourselves. And I don't think that any theory right now, I wouldn't place faith in any of those. At least in my mind, the good thing about science is that it can evolve to meet the current standards of what we understand. So it is kind of an interesting point that a lot of things we do can be self-destructive. So on the scale of humanity, we've somehow managed to survive for a long time, but there can be individual tendencies to be self-destructive and even on societal scale, like right. wars and stuff. So maybe we'll, you know, we'll have to update our theories to understand why maybe we're kind of impulse as well as like maybe self-destructive impulse. Right. Next quote. There are many who find a good alibi far more attractive than an achievement, for an achievement does not settle anything permanently. We still have to prove our worth anew each day. We have to prove that we are as good today as we were yesterday. But when we have a valid alibi for not achieving anything, we are fixed, so to speak, for life. Moreover, when we have an alibi for not writing a book, painting a picture, and so on, we have an alibi for not writing the greatest book and not painting the greatest picture. Small wonder that the effort expended and the punishment endured in obtaining a good alibi often exceed the effort and grief requisite for the attainment of the most marked achievement. I remember when my youngest son was swimming. My youngest son was a very good swimmer. My older son was a very lousy swimmer, but that's okay. There was a young man who was the same age as my older swimmer. I, I guess he'd been taught his whole life he was supposed to be good at everything. And he wasn't. But his solution was, as you just pointed out, a good alibi. So before a meet would start, he would tell you what was wrong with him. And then if he won, it would be like, look, I overcame all this. And if he lost... It would be like, well, see, I told you. And my son would always beat him. So it was like, you know, he, he was constantly having shoulder problems, knee problems. He'd been sick the day before. And my thought watching this young man is, how is he ever going to be successful in life if he always sets himself up to accept failure? I've always told my students that it's our failures that define us much more than our successes. I went to college at the University of Louisville my freshman year, my first freshman year. should point that out. Oh, okay. I was an absolute failure. I was not ready for college. I wasn't interested in learning. I went to college for maybe all the wrong reasons, but uh, that spurred me into where I went from there. I taught school for a year, and I was a failure the first year I taught school. I was fired. That's a failure. However, I've made a career of being a teacher, and I think I'm pretty good at it. I know you're well-liked, at least. But it's what I did after the failures. Mm. Did you sit there and mope about it and say, well, woe is me, I'm a terrible person, or did you say, okay, what can I do to get better? Let me ask you this. I have maybe heard it argued that some people that are naturally good at something may actually have a handicap, as opposed to like somebody like yourself who maybe was not a good teacher initially but got good. I accept that premise in that in my department over the years, when I wasn't the old guy, the department chairman, when they interviewed people, they were always looking for future employees who had been perfect students, who had done everything right, had made straight A's in every class, who 
never were in trouble. Well, that's all right, but they don't know what the majority of their class is like because they've never been the kid who, I never struggled academically. Failures were, were by laziness, not by lack of ability. But I know what to do. I know what it's like to be that kid who sits there and is bored in class. I know what it's like to be the kid who doesn't have his homework done and the teacher's yelling at him about it. And a lot of teachers, particularly at the high school level, have not experienced that because they were those, like my wife, perfect students. If it takes my wife two hours to do something, she spends three hours on it. If it takes me two hours to do something, I figure out how to get it done in an hour. It can be very difficult for them to deal with the student who doesn't try or the student who, especially the student who has the ability mm-hmm. and they just can't seem to tap into it. And I think I do a better job of dealing with those kids because that was me. As a teacher, have you came across any students that you realize like these students are very special and they will potentially will go on for great things but then, for whatever reason, they find that alibi not to achieve and they end up maybe in jail or just... Well, I don't know that I, I know of any that talk themselves out of greatness. I know there are some that have made choices to keep themselves from being as great as they could be. Kids that could have been successful in college and when they went off to college weren't. Did it break your heart? It's tough to deal with. I've got uh, a gentleman here in town. He's probably in his uh, 50s now who has basically worked his entire career in what I would call menial labor type of jobs, even though he's brilliant. One of the smartest kids I ever taught. And do you think he's happy at the minute? He is. Okay, well. Because what he does is he uses his mind off the job. He's not a failure, but people who look at him would think of him as a failure because they would say, He should have been like his brother, who's a doctor. He should have been like his brother, who's a computer scientist. You know, he's always made enough to get by. He's married. His wife had a child when they married, so he has a child that way. Married later in life, so he and his wife are happy. And uh, he is one of those people who likes to study things he wants to study. You know, when something new in computing came out, if he was interested in it, he figured out how to do it. So in theory, he probably could have a job doing that stuff. Oh, sure. But he, he, he had the ability to do it. Again, there are many who find a good alibi far more attractive than an achievement. For an achievement does not settle anything permanently. We still have to prove our worth anew each day. We have to prove that we are as good today as we were yesterday. But when we have a valid alibi for not achieving anything, we are fixed, so to speak, for life. Moreover, when we have an alibi for not writing a book, painting a picture, and so on, we have an alibi for not writing the greatest book and not painting the greatest picture. Small wonder that the effort expended and the punishment endured in obtaining a good alibi often exceed the effort and grief requisite for the attainment of the most marked achievement. In saying there are many who find a good alibi far more attractive than an achievement, I call that lazy. The first thing I thought when I read that was, I know a few people that actually have achieved something. They've done one thing in their life, and they're still riding that. They're still milking it. I can understand that, but that is like an alibi for doing nothing else. Many people look at 
the fact that if you don't achieve a major breakthrough by the age of 25, 30, you never will. Okay, so after 25 or 30, what do you do, give up? It's been proven in the scientific community that if you achieve early, that pressures you to continue to achieve, which is it's it's not good for your, you know, your psyche. You have to keep pressing and pushing and pushing. And it may not be possible for you to achieve greatness every day. Now, nobody achieves greatness every day. But to achieve greatness and then sit back and say, well, I did this and I did that 20 years ago. I mean, it's a memory, but you have to keep achieving. What, what, what is achieving? Uh, learning. Learning is achieving. You, you learn something every day. If you don't learn something every day, I don't care how small, how insignificant, then you do become stagnant. One thing I caught you saying, you think that might be a little bit of a curse to have your greatest hit at the beginning of your career, so to speak. It can be. It depends upon your personality. You know, you can uh, achieve, you can build a better mousetrap, you know, at 18 years old, you know, coming out of high school. Achieve nothing as great for the rest of your life, but achieving as great and achieving can be looked upon differently. Uh, great achievements and minor achievements. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it can be a curse if you let it be a curse. Right. The only way you can be driven is be inspired. Inspiration, to me, is comfortable. I like being inspired. I like learning new things, seeing new things. Well, to some people, learning is a burden or doing new things. Yeah, it is a struggle for some people because they don't want to do it. If you're not comfortable growing, and a lot of people aren't because growing is different. I mean, knowledge tears and rips, you know, at your psyche. And if you, if you don't like that, if you don't like the, uh, if you're insecure about the future, then no, alibi, alibi, alibi. Don't do anything. Hide in the corner. But if you're excited about the future and you look forward to every day, then you open yourself to all kinds of possibilities. Again, there are many who find a good alibi far more attractive than an achievement. For an achievement does not settle anything permanently. We still have to prove our worth anew each day. We have to prove that we are as good today as we were yesterday. But when we have a valid alibi for not achieving anything, we are fixed, so to speak, for life. Moreover, when we have an alibi for not writing a book, painting a picture, and so on, we have an alibi for not writing the greatest book and not painting the greatest picture. Small wonder that the effort expended and the punishment endured in obtaining a good alibi often exceed the effort and grief requisite for the attainment of the most marked achievement. Sure. There's always that little thing in your mind that's going like, no, it's too late. Don't try because you, you know, you'll fail. You know? And you not only have to fight the physical you know, and mental thing of learning the language or, or learning the, the music or, or whatever it is you're, you're trying to do, but you have to fight that little devil that, that goes. Okay, let's go there because age. Yeah. We're both getting older. Oh, life is more likely half over. Three quarters. <laughs> I was I'm being feeling generous. that good today. I was being generous. Uh, no, I mean, is there something you think like, well, I, I'm just too old now. I mean, I'm never going to do X, Y, or Z. 
I really wanted to be the point guard for the Cleveland Cavaliers, and I and I think I think that's fading. Those <laughs> chances. I think well, you know, I was the small, slow white guy, mm-hmm. you know, and and I mean, most teams will have a small, slow white guy, but <laughs> but even at that, I I think at my age, I'm I'm too old and slow to be the. I think you've got a secret, secret weapon. They're like, what's this senior citizen doing? Get on the floor, yeah, exactly. And then you really show them that. Yeah. Yeah, well, quite well, let's, let's let's hang on to that. Do you still have that dream to be a, a ballet dancer? No, no, that seems to have gone by the wayside. Uh-huh. I think the biggest thing that's stopping me is the diaper that I have to wear. It's more apparent in the, the leotards. Right, it's tough to look as, as cool and sleek, right. you know. Yeah. Before I was just nervous about the small package, now it's the big package. Again? There are many who find a good alibi far more attractive than an achievement, for an achievement does not settle anything permanently. We still have to prove our worth anew each day. We have to prove that we are as good today as we were yesterday. But when we have a valid alibi for not achieving anything, we are fixed, so to speak, for life. Moreover, when we have an alibi for not writing a book, painting a picture and so on, we have an alibi for not writing the greatest book and not painting the greatest picture. Small wonder that the effort expended and the punishment endured in obtaining a good alibi often exceed the effort and grief requisite for the attainment of the most marked achievement. Yes. Okay, I love that one. There's so much in there. That's really meaty. Um, I'm going to say the word mind f- It always seems to me that the mind f- of something is so much worse than the actual doing of it. Whether it's my 16-year-old with his homework or me with the dishes. Now, define that word, if you don't mind. The thought of doing something and the torture of uh, that I thought. Gotcha. The re- repetition of I don't want to do it I don't like doing it what if this happens what if that happens Ah." and then you do it and you're like oh actually that wasn't so bad and maybe I kind of enjoyed it I don't know I wait until I'm in the mood to do the dishes personally but as far as the alibi for not doing the thing I love that I'm so familiar with that one you know I'm like oh are we really Afraid of success? I don't know about that. It seems like we're afraid that we're not going to be able to recreate the picture in our mind. And that Mm. that feeling of failure is so painful. And yes, we know the master has failed more times than the student has ever tried. Yeah, that's Plato. The idea is always better than the the actual thing you pull off. Yeah. Well, and yeah, an artist are particularly condemned to this sort of cycle of self-denial and then, you know, this relentless pursuit of achievement because we have such great taste and very rarely are able to live up to our own tastes. And we go out and we see these amazing things. And certainly, if we were to devote as many hours to our own things as we do at speculating on them, we could create something that, well, maybe not monumental, worthwhile. The creation of the alibi in itself, I'd love to see somebody write a book about not writing a book. (laughs) (laughs) All the things they did instead of writing the book. Or yet another art gallery, but full of alibis. Right. (laughs) (laughs) No actual paintings. Yes. (laughs) Excuse notes. Yes. Excuse notes, yes. 
okay, are we afraid of our own greatness? Are we afraid of not measuring up to our greatness? Are we afraid of rejection? Or are we just kind of lazy? You know, a little bit of everything depends on the day. I get paralyzed sometimes by the enormity, but that's the eating the elephant. You know, you just gotta start with one bite. Yes, <laughs> yeah. Last quote, when a man or woman is truly honest, not just working on it, it is virtually impossible to insult them personally. There is nothing there to insult. Those who were truly ready for the kingdom of God were just such people. Their inner poverty of spirit and rigorous honesty had set them free. They were people who had nothing to be proud of. Yeah, you know, I just went to that seminar, Landmark Forum. So that's what happened. It's, it's that kind of thing. And I tell you what, it's so freaking freeing. Really? To think that I have everything and I have nothing. <laughs> and I have nothing and I have everything. It's the same thing. That was the coolest thing ever because as, as soon as I really got that, they have this part where they, they let you know that we make meaning out of something that happened. You know, um, you know if I drop the napkin, I'm so clumsy. No. The napkin fell on the floor. That's all that happened. That is, that's it. And we make meaning out of everything. I'm late. I'm so late. And when someone's late for me, they don't love me. They didn't come on time. She has no respect for me. And none of that happened. What actually happened is she showed up at 8.05. That's what happened. <laughs> Can so, I play devil's advocate without the way of thinking? Yeah. Like, I don't know how to put it now. Now you've kind of disarmed I know, me. right? And that's, <laughs> but that's the coolest thing. And I did. I went away. I'll tell you. I went away. And okay. I called. Okay, okay, I got one. Okay. So say this person who's late. Like say an employee that yes. you really need to, to be there yeah. you know, to help keep the business afloat. Say this morning they decided, well, instead of being there on time or they decided to watch some television show or finish it or something like that. Would you call that maybe a bit of a disrespect or at least... I would never... In this philosophy, I would never consider it because what happened is they were late. Okay. Or what happened was they showed up at 8.05. Okay. And the conversations you have with that person, so we open up at, mm -hmm. or let's say we open up at 8, the conversation is the business works when a customer shows up and when we have an employee here to check them out at 8. So being here at 8.05 just doesn't work. It's not good, bad, Oh, so you can still hold your ground and say, hey, buddy. I need you here at eight. And by eight, I mean eight. Yeah. And if I if it's eight oh one, I can say it's okay. eight. So you can still okay. And I can also you know change my mind if I you know. Mm -hmm. And that's when you get into the meaning. If the store opens, and you get into theories, and you know. And, can I give it a, a terrible extreme yeah. example? Yeah, because I really okay. haven't practiced this much, so yeah. That's okay. Good. Say someone kidnaps Lucy. How would they react to that? I mean, what would be? I don't know. That makes it sound like it's a cult-like thing in terms of they react to that. Well, I think what happens... Or what would be their advice to how to handle that situation? Uh, I'm sorry. Call 911, get someone to try and well, find her. <laughs> but how to, how to look at that in perspective. Like how to keep from freaking out maybe. or how. I think to... you do freak out. Well, yeah. And I think that you don't judge whether it's okay or not. I think you, I mean, emotions still exist. Okay. Emotions still exist. What would be interesting uh -huh. is if they would say, is that person who kidnapped her a bad person? 
I don't think you make that conversation, and that would be hard. You just wait till you get the kid back. <laughs> but then you say, oh, say, then you go into, um, and the, and she did this, and it was great because she was running around the room like an idiot. She, um, it wasn't a kidnapping scenario, but then you say, okay, well, Michael Jackson kidnapped her. And you think, oh, shit. And then you think about stuff that you've heard about Michael Jackson. But Michael Jackson, who has many, many millions of dollars, Uh let's just say no actual event of the child molestation ever occurred. And let's just say that he saw her wandering down the street. And let's just say, I mean, you can make these events to where you think, oh. Is it more of assuming the, the the positive possibility? It's recognizing what actually occurred and making no meaning okay. out of it. Okay. Now obviously something in that severe, you have laws, you know, and you abide by the laws and right. and as a mother, I'll kill you, you know. <laughs> but in reality, that's and that's how it happens. You have you ever had those scenarios where somebody's you're hurt by somebody and then you find out what really happened, it was like, oh yeah, no, oh, yeah. yeah, I think that's great. It's along those lines. Yeah. Yeah, so I was so freed and I called and I talked to my mom for an hour and I talked to my sister for an hour and my other sister for an hour and I called for my friend. and I don't talk on the phone. I hate the phone. And I could I all the way back from Atlanta, mm-hmm. I was on the phone the whole way. Was your ear warm? Burning. Yeah. Burning, but it but meant nothing. <laughs> it just meant that my phone was next to my ear. It didn't mean I didn't talk too much. It did, but it also didn't mean I changed. There's all this meaning, and so they say, you know, life. They don't sue me for this, but life is meaningless. Hmm. There is nothing, and there is, and it means nothing. There is nothing, and it means nothing. What about love? I don't know. Maybe that's chapter you know, two. We, we were talking about gurus. We were talking about earlier about someone insisting that if you are naked and you hold a rock that it heals you or something. And of course, we said that it's probably just another scam for a dude to see a girl naked. Yeah. Right. Uh, I could almost see someone abusing this thing you're saying when it comes to relationships or like let's say casual sex, for example. You know, because you hear the scenario often. It's sometimes a little lopsided with the genders of how people take it. But like uh, one will say uh, it was just a good time or but that's all meaning yeah and and another one is saying well that it meant something to me it didn't mean something that's all meaning and it couldn't it can mean something to you but that's not what happened what happened is we sat together and you can abuse it obviously but that's not obviously not the goal the goal is to free you of your story and who you are what happens and you have meaning and everything that happened you put a meaning into it and you carry that into every now 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 so 30 years later I am fat I am ugly I have a big nose I have a big forehead I failed at one job you know all this stuff and that inhibits me from going to a room full of people because I'm fearful and I'm afraid so if none of that ever happened if I wasn't ever fat, if I didn't ever have a big nose, you know, if I didn't ever have a big forehead, if I'd never had failed, then what? And the answer is I'm free. Again, when a man or woman is truly honest, not just working on it, it is virtually impossible to insult them personally. There is nothing there to insult. Those who were truly ready for the kingdom of God were just such people. Their inner poverty of spirit and rigorous honesty had set them free. They were people who had nothing to be proud of. I think one of our natural instincts, I always call it grading on the curve. 
uh, not just working on it. When you're just working on it, you self-assess based upon what you read in, in the news or what you see, what you think you see in other people. Like, well, at least I don't have that guy's problems. Okay, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, mention the kingdom of God. When you go ahead and allow yourself to think in terms of that ultimate standard, um, that we all, some of us may deny is there, but we somehow hold others to it kind of thing. And that's where your honesty is reflected, like, or that's what you're comparing your honesty to. I'm going to be honest towards this instead of just kind of society or other people's levels of, or the thing where they said people admitting to lying in America was like over 90%. And not just little fibs. Uh It was more like truly lying, truly deceiving people. But in other words, it starts with that where am I getting my measure from? Is it from the ultimate standard? Or is it from just societal standards? I interpret that as that's what he's getting at. And if you've come to that moment where you faced the ultimate, call it God, call it whatever you want to call it, you faced that and then you faced your own soul and you really looked inside and you saw not just the actions you know people perceived, but your motive stuff and your your reasons for your the reactions you knew for a fact were going on inside of you, even though no one would have been able to tell from the look on your face because you had that going on too. When you face those things about yourself, uh, yeah, that can eliminate it all, all kind of perceptions of real self-righteousness. Mm-hmm. Nothing can bring that out like marriage or having children. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You, come on, man. We all know it. We can wear a big old smile on our face and have some of the most hateful thoughts in the world inside mm-hmm. ourselves. We can. We, we know that happens. And we know other people can do it too. And if I really, truly face that, I will come to a place of somehow okay again in the religious tradition and this could be all all religions for sure sometimes the final result or a result or a byproduct of you know seeking wisdom or seeking discipline is a confidence you would hope confidence in your creator or confidence in the the stuff that you're peddling so to speak but more times than not it ends up being like confidence in yourself uh, or even like a very puffed up uh, thing how does one work on themselves and I know that you'll never get to a perfection but get things down pretty good to where you don't end up getting spoiled by your own success I think it still goes back to the, the, and being a quote about the kingdom of God and the nature of it even you know Jesus words like a blessed are the poor in spirit thing mm-hmm. it depends on the ground you're standing on and where, where you've come and this is just in the Christian tradition is the only thing I could really speak to um, with much insight is that moment of genuine honesty before the real standard, not the fake one, not the social one, but the real one, where I come to a place of brokenness within myself and I receive a redemption and a righteousness that is genuinely a gift. Uh, I had an experience that I can't elaborate on too much (laughs) because it would, but I almost got arrested once for something I knew for a fact I was guilty of. Mm -hmm. I deserved to be arrested and it it was an accident but I had done something that was a genuine violation of the law. And I knew that in that particular situation, they had every right on the books. And I, and I told the officer, I said, you, yes, yeah. I know. All I can plead is stupidity. That's all I can say. Yeah. I, I did something that was just stupid and I shouldn't have done it. And here it comes. And they even talked about charges and all those things. And I will never forget the feeling of the guy saying, hey, man, we're just going to 
never do this again, but we're just going to let this go. And that was one of the greatest days of my life. I went from one of the worst moments to the best moments. And just driving down the highway after I left that scene, I felt more freedom and less pride (laughs) than I think I ever have. Just the raw relief of knowing you were guilty, but being gifted out, uh, which... You know, and, and mercy. And that's the portrait that it's always painted in, in the Bible of Jesus and what he does and, and, and it, that gifting thing. And so then the strength comes from that. And it's not that I just go out and start doing it. That, that, the strength, and I think to your question was, I always remember that, the okay. baseline. The baseline becomes the humility of the gift. Keep, keeps you grounded. Uh, yeah, like I, you know, the, the story of you know, Jesus being crucified and he's between the two thieves is the great metaphor of human beings, I think. One is kind of saying, hey, get us out of this mess. Mm-hmm. The other saying, hey, we deserve to be in this mess. I always imagine what if, and, and after Jesus hey, turns to the guy who says, today you'll be with me in paradise thing, what if somehow he could have been let off the cross that day and just got the relief of the letting go and the gift how do you think he would have lived his life? Well, more than likely, he would have gone out and been a different person because his baseline would have been that relief of, mm-hmm. of mercy. And that becomes the thing. So that's what I think the quote is getting to, is just that they've come to that point. Whereas the other guy, if he would have been let go, there you, you can just tell. I mean, you like, read the stories, like, yeah, check it out. Yeah. Man, I'm going I'm I'm to be sneakier yeah. this time. Yeah. I'm going to do it better, man. I'm not going to get myself <laughs> in that mess again. And, and I've watched that in my own life. I've watched that in other people's lives. There is something about just that knowing, full face in, <laughs> guilty as charged. I it truly am. And we, we do this in human interaction, too, when somebody really violates you. But they truly come, and they don't make excuses, and then they say, hey, mm-hmm. what I did to you was flat out wrong. Usually that's what we're wanting people to see. I don't want you to make up for it. I don't want you to do anything. I just want you to acknowledge that the hurt was real and what you did was wrong. Don't pile it on with excuses. And then you're kind of setting them free in forgiveness. You hope that becomes a baseline for their treatment in the future. It's kind of how it functions, I think, in just sort of on our human relationships, much less our divine stuff, you know. Again? When a man or woman is truly honest, not just working on it, it is virtually impossible to insult them personally. There is nothing there to insult. Those who were truly ready for the kingdom of God were just such people. Their inner poverty of spirit and rigorous honesty had set them free. They were people who had nothing to be proud of. I think that even someone who's completely honest, they're going to have some values that can be attacked, or if not their values, you can attack someone who's close to them. You can attack their mom. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so people can still offend you. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of, of, you know, Kwai Chang Kane, David Carradine, who I met at oh. one point. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and did he, was, he offend you? Yes. Oh, he totally did. Really? He totally did. Wow, he it, kung fu'd you emotionally, huh? I was at Dragon Con in Atlanta, and this is a convention with 30, 50, I think they're up to 60,000 people. And David Carradine was there. I was chatting with his producer because I had just come back from Antarctica and I had a beautiful photos of penguins and things. And the producer was getting ready to, to do something where those penguin pictures were going to be useful to him. And the producer wanted me to meet David Carradine. And I was like, oh my God, I get to meet Kwai Chang Kate. Yes, you know, Kung Fu. <laughs> so we actually went through the hotel and we went into Carradine's room, hotel room. And Carradine was there and he's wearing these paisley pants and he was on the phone and he was 
pissed. He was in a bad mood. And the producer's trying to introduce me to him, and Carradine isn't having it. He's just something about taxes, and, blah, blah, blah. and the producer's trying to say, oh, look on your TV there, you've got these you know, game controllers, you know, games, and Carradine, oh, I hate games, games suck. Oh. <laughs> and I'm thinking, okay, I'm done. And so I quietly edge to the door and make my excuses, and I leave. I head down the hallway uh, to the elevator, and I'm like mashing the elevator button. I need the elevator to arrive, and the elevator doesn't arrive. And unfortunately, I see down the hall, producer and Carradine come out, and they're like, oh, man, elevator, please, please, please. But it doesn't arrive until they're there, and so then all three of us are in the elevator. We're heading down, and the producer's saying to me, join us for lunch, join us for lunch. And I'm thinking, no, don't do it. Please join us for lunch. Okay. So we get to lunch, and Carradine is continuing to just be a jerk. And I'm looking at the menu, and I'm thinking, this is not how I want to spend my afternoon. And I make my excuses, and I, and I leave. And Carradine looks at me, and he smiles, and he holds out his hand as though he's going to shake hands with me. And I say, okay, I'll, I'll hold out my hand. And he does the, where he pulls his hand back. Whoa. Yeah, and, he, and, and he's like, He's like snarking at me, and I, and I just leave, and I'm thinking that is the worst experience I've ever had with celebrity, <laughs> ever, ever, and it was especially disappointing because Kwai Chang Kang was this huge role model for mm-hmm. me as I was growing up. You know, be this calm and martial arts, mm-hmm. and always have your center when uh-huh. everything around you is chaotic. And the only excuse I can possibly make for him is he might have been getting ready for the, the movie Kill Bill, where he was a really evil character. And uh, so he might have been that. He was just, or maybe he's a jerk. I don't yeah. know. And I'm speaking ill of the dead because he did die yeah. a couple years later. But when people ask me, what is the best experience you ever had meeting a celebrity? What is the worst experience? <laughs> he is the worst. worst. Wow. Um, the best, uh-huh. if I, if I yeah, could sure. remove that aftertaste from my mouth, <laughs> um, two, one of them was um, Gene Wilder. Oh, yeah. who I met in Los Angeles. I was in a, a language school, and there were these little breakout rooms, and my books were on one of the tables, and someone said, hey, you know, can can Jean use your room? And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so I you know, I went in, I'm picking up my books, and I'm cleaning up with them, and he never said a word, but he just he just smiled. Mm-hmm. He, and he was, he was nodding, and he was smiling, and it was... It was what I needed, that kind of benevolent friendliness from him. And and again, just a small moment, but it meant so much to me of like, this is how, now that I'm famous, this is how I want to make people feel. Right. And and then the other one was Dr. Drew. He does like celebrity rehab okay. and, and some other yeah, shows. Yeah, sorry, I'm a little ignorant. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. And, and um, it was on my birthday, and I was changing planes in Las Vegas, and he was changing planes in Las Vegas. Uh, this was a few years ago, and I, I happened to see him. I'm like, oh, wow, that's Dr. Drew. And I, got, I happened to have a copy of my book with me, The Secret Codes and Cryptograms. And so I got it, and I autographed it, and I went up to him, and I said, I really like your work. I'd like to, you to have a copy of my book. And, and he was very kind and very gracious mm-hmm. and accepted the book, and, and we chatted for a couple minutes. He was like, you know, uh, how long had I been into codes? How had I gotten into codes? Mm-hmm. And uh, So he asked you about you. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. And then we kind of went our separate ways. And he was everything that I had hoped he would be. Very Mm -hmm. kind and very gracious. Oh, cool. So, again, it's something that I take to heart as I'm aware that when I go to these conventions and sometimes people will come up and just chat with me for a minute. And for me, it's just a minute. And Mm -hmm. for them, I'm aware that this can be this huge impression on them. At 
one of my game conventions, Sumucon. This came home when I was chatting with one of my fans. And she came up to me and said, oh, Ilanka, thank you for that time. And I'm, I have no memory of her, not of her face, her name, nothing. And she says, yeah, I took your advice. And I'm looking oh. at her going, okay. I, again, I have no memory of her. And she said, and you were so right. And I went home and I sold my house and I sold my car Whoa. and I changed my job. And I, I've got this panic <laughs> sense in my heart, like, oh, my God. What did I say? I'm probably thinking about what's for dinner. (laughs) And she was in a much happier place. And she was thanking me for that. But I'm also aware that this was not me. This this was nothing that I said to her. This was, she was in a place where she was ready to make a change. And she projected onto me the authority to give her permission to make that change. And that's that's what I believe. I don't think I told her, oh, sell your house. (laughs) I still have no... And and she remembered, she said, oh, yeah, we we sat at this table and you were sitting there and you were sitting there and I'm looking at it and I still had no memory of this woman. People with celebrity or with a certain amount of fame, we have, without knowing it, an enormous amount of influence on some Uh people and we just need to be really aware of that. And... Be kind, be approachable, and be aware that people are projecting all kinds of stuff on you that may have nothing to do with you. That's great. And, you know, because I've had enough bad experiences with people that I looked up to and can't listen to the records anymore. Or whatever, <laughs> I, I just don't want to be my heroes anymore because I'd, I'd rather them to be the, the thing I imagined. So. Right. But I know they're people too, you know. When a man or woman is truly honest, not just working on it, it is virtually impossible to insult them personally. There is nothing there to insult. Those who were truly ready for the kingdom of God were just such people. Their inner poverty of spirit and rigorous honesty had set them free. They were people who had nothing to be proud of. It makes me think of like how Mother Teresa was. So you, you couldn't insult her? You tried? I tried so many times. Like I was like, Hey, little woman, I'm taller than you. But she never like was like, you know, I'm going to go cry. No, it just kind of makes me think of like, like with her, like there was such a purity to her, to her actions mm-hmm. that it doesn't matter whether people would say negative things. When a man or woman is truly honest, not just working on it, it is virtually impossible to insult them personally. There is nothing there to insult. Those who were truly ready for the kingdom of God were just such people. Their inner poverty of spirit and rigorous honesty had set them free. They were people who had nothing to be proud of. In the book of Psalms, David was real. Pilate, I believe it was, that said, what is truth? You know, when Jesus said, I am the truth, he said, well, what is truth? And the truth is, there again, being honest is so important. But in Psalms 119, verse uh, 165, I believe it is, it says that if you have a love for the word, nothing shall offend you. Perfect love casts out all fear. Well, when you really think about it, fear is just a shadow. It doesn't exist because with God, there's, everything's light. There is no darkness. And so 
what I'm finding in myself is that the more that I get to know how much he loves me and how much he cares for me, and he said this, I believe he said this to me, my intuition agreed with what I, this, this is the communication I have with, I believe my God, is through my intuition. He said to me, in so many words, he said, I'd like for you to be passionate for me like I am passionate for you. When I thought about that, that's what I desire. I, I desire every fiber of my body, my being, to be completely in that love, perfected love, where nothing will offend me. And that I don't react or respond, except for uh, to hate evil and to, to hate faults. I don't like faults. I don't like facades. And like, like you said about there's a lot of pastors or a lot of people that should not be in, in, in the position of power because it's, it, it'll corrupt them if they don't have the right attitude toward it. So again, you asked the question about truth and being honest. And so my whole goal is just to be honest. And when I became a Christian, I had like 22 employees. So I would pay my employees cash instead of having them put their overtime on. So I was cheating them and also the government or the feds. Well, when I became a Christian, I was out of it. And so when the guy came in to audit me, I remember he wanted to see all the time cards. I had two sets of time cards. He came in before the, your seven years of statute of limitations. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> even though you had, you had corrected your ways. Yeah. Okay. You yeah. just got to see. And, and so uh, what happened is that I gave him the time cards that, that I wanted to show him. So I'm going up the steps to go back into the restaurant from the office. And this conviction came upon me and said, you need to be honest with him and tell him that you have another set of time cards. Uh-huh. And I did. I, I, I just turned around. I didn't think about it because if you think about it long, you won't do it. You talk yourself out of it. I just turned around and went down and grabbed the other time cards and told him. I said, I've been having two time, two sets of time cards. And I paid the price. I mean... How did he react? Well, he, he was kind of like dumbfounded uh-huh. that I would be honest. And then I told him what had happened to me, that I didn't want to be in a position of lying. And I still find myself in, in, in that position that I... For, for a person to be completely honest, and especially if they're in business, there's so many ways to manipulate. And this is the other thing that I was very good at doing. I was very good at manipulating because of the charisma. It's like somebody said to me one time, if somebody shoots an arrow at you and it sticks in your heart, you're guilty. <laughs> yeah. If you're not guilty, then the arrow goes straight through and you're not offended. And recently, I was accused of, uh, another man came to me and said, I think that you have been sleeping with my wife. Whoa. Way back, 40 years ago, when I was a teenager. And, and I knew it wasn't true, so it didn't offend me. And I just said, I said, really, to be honest with you, uh-huh. I wouldn't have been interested at all. And she was a beautiful woman, but I, didn't, I was not interested in her. I didn't even really understand that part when I was 16 years old, but I wasn't offended. And so he immediately knew that I wasn't guilty. Let me ask you this. When's the last time you have been offended? And you realize, like, oh, man, I, I still got to work on myself here. I really believe that there's always So it may still happen yet. <laughs> oh, yes, <Okay>. absolutely. <laughs> that, that's the part that I'm not perfected, is that I can be offended when I'm accused of something, and especially with my wife and I. I like to spend money. I live from paycheck to paycheck, basically. Uh-huh. 
Money to her is very important. Money to me is something that I have that I just love giving it to people or I love uh, treating people. I don't like shopping. But when I go, I spend money until I run out. And so uh, when she accuses me of it, I get offended. Or if I'm sneaky about something. For an example, I, I went and got 120 quarts of grape juice and I went and bought all new jars. Mm -hmm. She doesn't know it to this day that I bought all new jars because I tried to hide it from her. But she will if she listens to this. <laughs> <laughs> now she'll know it, so yeah. she'll confront me about it, but uh -huh. I'll have to admit it. But I hid it from her. Mm -hmm. And what I went through to try to hide it from her so that she wouldn't get up, because I had jars at home, but I didn't want to gather them, uh -huh. get them together. Uh -huh. So yes, things like that, uh -huh. that I was sneaky, and she accuses me of being sneaky. Uh -huh. Well, I am, uh -huh. and sometimes. And when I am, I'm guilty. And the source of the quotes? Let's meet on the bridge and exchange prisoners. You walk home with my thoughts, I walk home with yours. Maybe then, the war is over, is a piece of poetry written by Marian Ibertowski, who was a European music journalist, nice enough to let me sleep on her apartment floor in Brussels, Belgium, back in the early 2000s. When I went to depart, Marian gave me copies of some collections of poems she wrote, which I found to be beautiful and full of insight into human hurt. Next quote. There are many who find a good alibi far more attractive than an achievement, for an achievement does not settle anything permanently. We still have to prove our worth anew each day. We have to prove that we are as good today as we were yesterday. But when we have a valid alibi for not achieving anything, we are fixed, so to speak, for life. Moreover, when we have an alibi for not writing a book, painting a picture and so on, we have an alibi for not writing the greatest book and not painting the greatest picture. Small wonder that the effort expended and the punishment endured in obtaining a good alibi often exceed the effort and grief requisite for the attainment of the most marked achievement. It's from Eric Hoffer, who was sometimes referred to as the longshoreman philosopher because it was during his lunch breaks and long waits at his longshoreman job in San Francisco that he did much of his writing. His most famous book is titled True Believer. And last quote, When a man or woman is truly honest, not just working on it, it is virtually impossible to insult them personally. There is nothing there to insult. Those who are truly ready for the kingdom of God were just such people. Their inner poverty of spirit and rigorous honesty had set them free. They were people who had nothing to be proud of. Is from Brennan Manning, a man whom wore many hats in his life, including that of a Catholic priest, Protestant lecturer, husband, author, and a cave-dwelling hermit. His most known book is called The Ragamuffin Gospel, from which today's quote originated from. The In the Corner Back by the Woodpile podcast is produced by a closet, a pocket, and a suitcase. You can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at spuncounterguy. Be sure to download the new Podbean app to hear this podcast and others on your tablet and smartphone. And we are now on iTunes. Just do a search for Back by the Woodpile on the iTunes store and we should pop up. And a special thanks to thebrofisticate.com. <laughs>